I'm so grateful to uh, Scott who preached last weekend, did a, did a fantastic job. We got to listen to it online and am, am thankful for him. Um, and I was actually in Phoenix last weekend. I uh, went out, my, my wife and I, we have a 20-year-old daughter who lives in Phoenix and she's working on her master's degree and has a job and she was um, moving. So the apartment that she lives in now, she got when she, was, she had a part-time job and now that she has a full-time job, benefits and all that, she got a better apartment on the good side of town that my wife and I are very uh, happy for. And so I went out uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday to be with her and um, help her move meet her boyfriend, that's another story, uh, and uh, <clears throat> that was super fun, um, yeah, and actually, he'll be here on Thanksgiving weekend, uh, you can get your questions for him, that would be awesome, um, and so anyways, I, I was out in Phoenix, and I was flying home um, last Sunday, and so you know, you know how this goes, whenever a pastor flies on a plane, he always has to have a story to come home with, right, that's like always the way it works, and so uh, I got to the airport really early on Sunday, and I was sitting in Pete's coffee and um, working on the sermon a little bit, and I was praying. And my prayer was, I was just, t- you know, saying, God, I'm going to get on that plane. I got a two-hour and 20-minute flight. It'd be awesome to have somebody sit next to me who I can share, you know, the gospel with. That's all I'm asking for. That'd be super cool. And so, anyways, I, I, had a, um, I had a good boarding pass for Southwest. I got on the plane. I got a seat near the front. Um, somebody was already sitting in the window, at the window seat. I wanted to sit in the aisle, so I sat in the aisle. And, um, and then it reached that awkward point, you know, where the plane's filling up, and the captain says, yeah, we're going to have a full flight, so, you know, there's, there's going to be people sitting next to you. I uh, just kind of get over that right now. And, and then you reach that point where there's a seat next to you, and people are slowly walking down the aisle because their choice of seats is extremely limited. You know that? And you don't want to make eye contact with anyone. You just kind of look down if you're in a seat and people walking down. And so anyways, I'm praying, oh Lord, just give me somebody perfect. And this, uh, this, this 33-year-old young woman is coming down and she looks at me and I'm like, no. And she's like, can I sit next to you? And I, what I wanted to say was no. Just keep moving, sister. So let's get on that. Now here's why, all right? If you're, if you're a guy who's sensitive at all in our culture right now, um, you know, just striking up a conversation with a 33-year-old woman next to you that you don't know just feels really sketch right now. It just feels kind of creepy and in the culture we're living in, and I'm like, ah, Lord, I don't want to do that. There's no way I'm going to do that. I don't want to be that guy. And so I'm, we're sitting there, and um, she sits down, and she puts her headphones on, and she's looking at her phone, and I'm just like, well, this is, the only way I'm going to have a conversation with her is if she starts a conversation. So the plane starts off, and, and I'm just thinking, how could I, how could I bait her into a conversation? Like, like, what could I do? And I had an idea. So my idea was, I had my iPad, um, which is ginormous, right? And I'm like, so, so what I did was, I'm like, instead of watching Netflix, I'm going to, um, I'm going to, I'm going to work on the sermon, and I'm going to, I'm going to outline the passage in the Greek. So I'm going to have Greek text on my, on my computer and on my iPad. I'm not going to have it down. I'm going to prop it up against the seat so she can see it. And maybe she'll ask. Maybe she will. So I put it up there. I prop it up real prominent, really big letters. You know, they're like this big. And, so, and she's on her phone, and we're, we're kind of just taking off. We're going. And pretty soon, uh, I hear her lean over, and she says, can I ask you a question? And I was like, well, yes, you can. Yes. <laughs> What's on your mind? She says, what are, you, what are you reading? What language is that? So great. I'm like, oh, well, this is, this is Greek. And she says, Greek? Where did you learn to read Greek? I'm like, this, how, this couldn't be any easier. Bait taken. So, right? So I'm like, 
well, this is Greek. I'm, I'm stay Where did you learn Greek? I learned it in school. She says, did you go to, did you go to seminary? I'm like, yes, I did. Yes. Yes, I did. Um, she says, what are you reading? I'm like, this is the Bible. This is the, this is the book of Philippians. You, have you ever read the Bible? She says, yeah, I, I read the Bible. Now I'm kind of getting, oh, no. Oh, no. I'm like, you read the Bible. Do you go to church? Yeah, I go to Bridgetown and Portland. I'm like, oh, what a disappointment. You're a Christian, aren't you? <laughs> She's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm like, oh, put your headphones back on. There's nothing to talk about. I want to share the gospel with somebody. So anyway, she says, can I ask you a few questions? So we talk. And over the next two hours, we talk about her church. We talk about the gospel. And we, we talk about uh, her job. Um, she, she tells me she's engaged. She's marrying a guy in Colorado. Go through the whole thing. And she's got questions about that and all this stuff. So we're talking. And, it, and then it occurs to me, in the middle of our conversation, that the guy sitting next to her by the window has his headphones off and he's leaning over. He's listening to every single word. So this is what our conversation turned into. I said, so I'd tell her, because you didn't have to talk really loud in an airplane, right? And I, so I'd say, so you believe in Jesus? And she'd say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. And I'd say, do you, you believe that he was buried, you know, that he died for his sins? Yeah, I believe that he died for my sins. He paid for them on the cross. And I believe that he rose on the third day and he conquered sin and death. It's just, just like so, so we're just asking each other questions. We're both like laughing. We're, we're talking about this. And the guy next to us is like leaning over and listening. And so it was great because because in the end, it was not what I expected. In fact, it was better. Because not only did we have a chance to share the gospel in a way we hadn't really planned, but I got to do it as a team. Got to do it together. And, I, and, and here's why. Sometimes you think, why in the world, why would you do that on a plane? Why wouldn't you just get on, put your headphones on, and watch some Netflix? Why would you do that? Well, there's a good reason. Because I was on that plane as an ambassador of the gospel. I was on that plane as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Because everywhere that I go, that's who I am. And everywhere that you go, that's, that's who you are. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. So this weekend we want to talk about this, uh, this something to know in your notes. Here's what I want you to know this weekend. God has called every one of us as believers to stand together. To stand together as worthy citizens. We'll unpack that. As worthy citizens of heaven, right here and right now. So remember, Paul's in prison when he writes this. Paul, Paul doesn't say, hey, when I get out of prison, I'll live as a worthy citizen. When, when, when I get in better circumstances, then I'll talk about the gospel. Paul says, wherever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are an ambassador. Let me pray for us and we'll dive into the text. Father, I thank you for uh, bringing us here this morning and I thank you for your, your word to us. And I pray that you will unpack this, this passage for our hearts, for our lives, for our minds. Uh, be our teacher now, in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So this whole citizenship of heaven stuff that Paul wants to talk about today, a couple things in your notes um, as we dive in and want to talk about. The first is, uh, Paul reminds us that if you are a Christian, you have been called to what we're going to term as a worthy citizenship. So not, not just that you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, but God is calling you to be a worthy citizen, which is different than just being a citizen. And we're going to pick up the text today in verse 27 when Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, uh, whatever translation you're reading from or reading from the notes, which is the ESV or the NIV or the New American Standard, it doesn't matter. Um, commentators have noted that all of the translations are very weak 
in um, trying to get across uh, what the passage is, the force of the passage here. And so I've put in your notes um, a better translation, uh, which is just adding a couple of words to the text, which would read this way. Only let your manner of life, uh, and here's the addition, as citizens, as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now when Paul says manner of life, that's one word in the Greek, if, if that's important to you, and it shares its root with the uh, word that we get the English word city from or citizenship from. So all that to say together, what Paul is really talking about here is what it means to be a worthy citizen. And the citizenship that he's talking about, of course, is, is being a citizen of the kingdom of God. So it's an interesting picture that Paul paints here. Uh, he's writing to believers in Philippi, the city of Philippi. Uh, Philippi was established by the Greeks, but eventually conquered by the Romans, and it became a Roman colony in Macedonia. It was an outpost, um, and it was referred to sometimes as a little Rome. And this was something that um, the Philippians would wear proudly. You know, they, they would walk around, and they, they had the t-shirt. I, I, I live in Philippi, and we are proud, um, we are proud people of, a, of the colony of, of Rome. And they would give allegiance to Rome. Uh, they would give allegiance to the leaders uh, of Rome. They adopted Roman dress and Roman foods and Roman names, and they spoke in Latin, which was the official language of Rome at that time. And they were, they were very proud of their city, proud of their status as being a Roman colony. You know, sometimes you go through cities like that, cities that are kind of very proud of themselves, and, you know, as soon as you drive across the line, there's like, you know, welcome to, you know, I don't know, Camus, we love ourselves, um, we have signs everywhere. So we have more people from Washougal on Saturday, I think. They were laughing a lot, you know, we're state champions, you know, just keep moving kind of thing. And we, 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 love our, uh, we love our city, we're better than you. And this is kind of, this is kind of Philippi. You know, they're very proud of who they are. They're very proud that they are a Roman outpost. So here's what Paul's saying. This is a great point. He says, just as Philippi was a Roman outpost in Macedonia, Right, so think about, you got Macedonia, and then you've got this outpost, this outpost of Rome. What he says is this, that as, as believers, you are part of an outpost in an outpost. <laughs> you at the outpost, the kingdom of heaven, the, the church, inside an outpost of Rome, inside the world. And, and as the, the kingdom of God is an outpost in this city, uh, we have a leader who is not Nero, but it's Jesus Christ, and, and we are a gospel outpost. So he says, I want you to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now, what does that mean, to be worthy of the gospel? Well, I put it this way. We often tell you the gospel is just very, you know, simply that, that Jesus was God, eternal, that he came to earth, that he, he lived among us, right? He lived a perfect life for us. He went to the cross and died for us. He was buried for us. He rose on the third day for us. He ascended to heaven and he saves all who believe in him by faith. So how would we, how do we respond to that? Right? Well, we respond in kind. What we say is, as, as uh, Scott talked about last week, we, we die to ourselves and we now live for Christ. We, we die to ourselves, we die to our agenda, and we live for his agenda. We, we, we live for his great commission. We live for the, the great commandment. It means that we speak his words, that we reflect his character, that we proclaim his gospel, that we are ambassadors. For the time that we are alive, after we become a Christian, for the rest of our life, we are not our own. We belong to Christ. We have been bought with a price. 
In Romans, Paul talks about this, and I wish we could read more of it, but just I'll read the first verse. Paul has been talking for 11 chapters. It, basically, it's like, you know, God did this, God did this, God has saved you, Jesus came, all the stuff that God's done for us. And then in chapter 12, he turns a corner with the word therefore. And, and he's going to change course now. And he says, therefore, and remember we always say, when you see the word therefore, we ask, what is the word therefore? Therefore, right? So what's it, what's it there for? What's the point? And here's what Paul says. Therefore, I urge you, I, I beg you. And in view of everything that God's done, he's like, I get on my knees and I'm imploring you, right? In view of God's mercy, what is that? The grace of God. Think for a minute about what God has done for you. Think for a minute about who you were apart from Christ and who you are in Christ. Because sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we forget what our life was like without Christ. Who we would be without Christ. He says, just think about that. Now, in view of that, in view of God's mercy and love for you, here's, what, here's the only reasonable thing to do. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, this would have caused the average Jewish Christian back then to sit back and go, wait, what? Because when you had a sacrifice back then, what did you do with the sacrifice? You killed it. Yeah, and it was dead. That's the way it worked. But we're supposed to be living sacrifices. How does that work? Well, it means that we die to ourselves, and now we are alive to Christ. We are dead to ourselves and alive for Christ. And then he says this, and I love this. This is your spiritual act of worship. I think it's the New American Standard pre-1995 edition, if you're into that, where it says this is your reasonable act of worship. But I like this idea. This is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, this is the foundation upon which all genuine worship is built. So maybe you came in this morning and you sang a song. Now you can sing a song and not have it be worship. What makes it worship? You can give money and not have that be an act of worship. Uh, You could say a prayer you can listen to a sermon, and it, it could be or not be an act of worship. What makes it an act of worship? Paul says right here, because it springs from this foundational spiritual act of worship, that you are dead to yourself, and now you are alive to Christ. And this is what makes every other form of worship so meaningful, so genuine. And it's why sometimes we might come to church, engage in worship, and feel like it just didn't connect today. What, what was it? Was God here? Was it? Of course God was here. He was here before you got here, and he'll be here when you leave. It's not God, it's you. Because maybe you haven't been living a, a, as a living sacrifice. And so Paul talks about this idea of being a worthy citizen of heaven, where I die to myself. I live for Christ. I die to my agenda. I live for God's agenda. In my thoughts, I live for God's agenda. My to-do list reflects God's agenda. My words, my decisions, my relationships, my my finances, when I'm sitting on a flight, it's God's agenda. And so he talks about this living as worthy citizens. We have been called to be worthy citizens. But what does that citizenship look like? So it's a lot of things, but Paul mentions a couple of them, and I've, I've put them in your notes. What is the focus of a worthy citizen of the kingdom of God? Now, it wasn't easy to be a citizen of heaven in Philippi, in those days, and it was about, actually, to get much difficulter for them. Difficulter, that's not a word. It was get be more difficult for them. Too much coffee. Uh, Caesar was, was honored in that culture as, as Lord 
emperor at public events. So you know, today you might go to a football game, a basketball game, a sporting event, and uh, maybe we'll sing the, the national anthem. You go to school in the morning and maybe they say the Pledge of Allegiance. Do they still do that? In some places, my wife's class does. So you do that, and that's kind of an allegiance thing that you do. Well, they did something like that back then, but it wasn't the national anthem. You would give allegiance to Caesar, and, and you, would, you, know, you would honor him as Lord You would honor him as a God. And if you were a good citizen, that's what you did. And if you didn't do it, it bordered on treason. And this was the problem because Christians would go to, you know, events and and they wouldn't want to proclaim Caesar as Lord. Imagine that. So they would just stand quietly. I don't know what they did if they bowed the knee. I have no idea what they did. Uh, But they wouldn't participate. And then that would make... Romans really angry and they would accuse the Christians of being bad citizens and pressure them to conform. They would consider a Christian's heavenly citizenship as being very un-Roman. And so Paul says this, so that whether I I, I come and see you or I'm absent, remember he's in prison and he's like, "I, I might get out of prison and come see you. I might not get out of prison. I may die in here. But no matter what, my, my prayer is that I will hear that you are, a couple things, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So let's, let's unpack this here, a couple things. He says, first of all, he, he says a worthy citizen is one who stands firm in one spirit. So what is the one spirit here? And this is kind of interesting and if, you're, if you're into original languages. Um, some argue that the spirit is the Holy Spirit and some argue that it's the spirit of a person. And in some Bibles, the spirit is capitalized and some it isn't. Um, so people are like, well, what is this? Well, it could be the Holy Spirit. And that would make a lot of uh, sense because the Holy Spirit is who makes us one. So if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit and I have the Spirit and he has the Spirit and she does. And we have that in common. The Spirit binds us together. It makes us one. So that's why, for instance, you can travel away and, you know, maybe sit on a plane next to someone you've never met before and you start to talk and there's this connection there. And it's a real connection because you both have the Spirit of God in you. So some say it's the, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit gives us a supernatural ability to stand firm for the gospel, which is certainly true, uh, that it's not really based on our abilities but on God's power. So we need to learn to stand in the unity of the Spirit. And that's undoubtedly part of this. But some will say that the Spirit here he's talking about is the human spirit. And that's kind of playing off a different idea that our humanness, and maybe you've noticed this, but our human tendency is to divide more than it is to unite. And of course, all you have to do is turn on the news any day, at any time, and you will hear a story about how people have divided in our world. Um, We divide over the craziest things. Even in the church, we divide. We divide over preferences. We divide over opinions. We divide over just crazy things like style of music or, or, you know, over politics. We divide over politics. We, we... (laughs) This is crazy. Why would a Christian divide over politics? Why? We divide over age. We do that. We tend to hang out with people our age. We, you know, we, we look at older people and like, you know, they're old and, you know, they're, they're no fun. And, you know, older people look at young people and say, you know, they, they're, they're crazy. They, they have no discipline, whatever it is, you know. And we divide over age. We divide over financial status. Uh, we divide over ethnicity. Uh, we divide over gender. You know, we divide over pets. You're a cat person. I'm a dog person. You're crazy. That makes sense. I mean, these are the kind of things that we do. 
And Paul comes along and says, see, as citizens of heaven, we're not like that. Jesus died for us. He, he saved us. He made us a family. He unified us. He made us one. So as Christians, we don't do things that undo the work of Christ. That's one of the things that Christians don't do. Okay, we don't divide over these things. We stand together. We don't undo the work of Christ. We work at it. We protect it. We're engaged in it. We don't say things that feed it. We don't do things that, that encourage division. We don't do that. And if we do, we repent of it. We, we deal with it. So he says we're, we're, we're one in this way, and then he talks about uh, with one mind, striving together side by side. So this is really interesting to me. I was down in Phoenix last week, and at least in the circles I run at, at, at run with in, in Phoenix, you, you can talk about Jesus, talk about the gospel, talk about church, and nobody blinks an eye. You can do it in public, and it's, it's okay. Have you noticed that the Pacific Northwest is slightly different from that? And, you know, we live in a culture that really doesn't want Christians to stand loudly and proudly for, for really anything. They want us to be quiet and sit in the corner. We're not allowed to disagree with our culture. We're not allowed to you know, disagree with the ethics and morals of the world that we're living in. We're not allowed to be discerning. We're not allowed to voice it, Facebook it, tweet it. They'll push back. They'll push you down. This is our culture. And so Paul says that's why we strive. Okay, this is important. This is why we strive. That word strive means to contend, to compete, uh, to be in a competition. We get the English words athlete and athletics from this. It, it, it implies effort. It implies discipline. It implies breaking a sweat. It implies being worn out. In other words, what Paul's saying is, if you get to the end of a day, and you get home and you sit in your couch, and you're like, well, that was an easy day. Paul's like saying, if you don't, you know, if you don't smell, you probably weren't doing it right, okay? Like on a good day, you, you, right, you work up a sweat, and a good day. This is because you strive. And notice you don't just strive, you do it side by side. It's about teamwork. So we don't, we don't contend for the gospel alone. Uh, we cooperate with other believers. We, we pray together. We support one another. We encourage our teammates to get in the game. We coach. We, we cheer them on. So uh, let's see, years ago, I don't want to say how long ago, many, many years ago, I was a youth pastor over in Vancouver. And uh, we would talk a lot about sharing the gospel and all that. And I remember one day, I had this, I, I thought it was a great idea. I had this idea. I, I remember going to the youth group and saying, what would you guys say if on your spring break, instead of sleeping in and messing around, what if um, we loaded on a bus and we went to Salt Lake City? So what happened was we were kind of living in a period in Vancouver where it, it just seemed like every other day somebody was coming to your door from a cult and knocking on the door and, and preaching a false gospel. And we got so tired of it. And so I said, what if we turned the tables? Right? So what if we went to Salt Lake City and we knocked on the doors of Mormons, right? Like how well, this can imagine that. So I was like, what if we take a day 
every, uh, you know, once a week for two months. And you'll come to church, give up an evening, and we'll train all day about how to go door to door in a 98% Mormon community. And then you'll give up your spring break and we'll travel to Salt Lake City and we'll go door to door. How does that sound? Anyone want to do that? And we had a busload of kids every year, 40 kids plus who would go. We did that three or four years. But here's what I always vividly remember. I remember like, you know, it would be so exciting and we're giving up vacation and we're traveling to Salt Lake City. And then I always remember the first morning that we were going to go out door to door. And so we'd all be eating breakfast and it would be dead silent. You know, it'd be like, it would feel like before you went out in the Coliseum, you know, as a Christian. Everybody's just eating their eggs, scared to death. And then we're going to go out, go door to door. And here's what happened every single time. That first day we'd go out. Now we always sent them out two by two. We'd always have two people together, and they would train together, and they'd go out. They would always come back in the evening, and we'd have dinner together, and they would be so excited. And they would stand up and say things like, I never thought I could do this, but together, I realized that I could. And this is one of the big takeaways for people who went on that trip. In fact, actually, several of them got married. Uh, like they decided teamwork was so good. But, um, but this is what they would learn, that there are things we cannot do and even it, that are very difficult to do on our own, but together we can do amazing things. Jesus talked a lot about unity. In John 17, 21, he's, he's praying to the Father. And he says this, he's praying for, for believers. He says that they may all be, notice they may all be one that they may be unified, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now he's talking about the Trinity. He's comparing our unity to the, to the unity of the, of the Trinity. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe. Now watch this. That the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus said, when the church is one, it's like this huge billboard to the power of the gospel. He says the same thing in John 13. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, that you be unified. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, again, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love, if you have unity with one another. Unified believers are a billboard to the world of the power and the transforming work of the gospel in us. And unity is so important as you read in scripture that you might expect believers to vigorously protect unity at all costs within the church. Unfortunately, that is often not the case. Instead of fighting a common foe, we often fight each other. Right? We, we tend to fight and we are easily offended by each other, and then we hold grudges, and, and, and we divide by our words and with our actions, and we are, we are proud, and instead of repenting and asking forgiveness, we begin to have division in the church. Uh, a good friend of mine used to be a pastor in, um, over across the river in Portland, uh, Mike Fleischman, is now with Missions Door, and uh, he writes an article every week, and I wanted to read you one that he, uh, he wrote this week, and I thought he put it really well, and this may be familiar to you, but uh, he brings out this point. He says, you probably already know that firefighting in America began as a strictly voluntary activity. What you might be surprised to learn was that in the early days, firefighting was also competitive. Along with many other bright ideas in the new world, Benjamin Franklin first proposed the idea of a volunteer fire brigade in the 1730s following a devastating fire in Philadelphia. Now, prior to this time, there was no organized response in case of fire. Franklin's idea was a rousing success with so many volunteers that a single fire brigade was not enough. 
And so in short order, Philadelphia soon had several independently operated volunteer fire brigades. And with the introduction of fire insurance, there was an added incentive. If a structure was saved, the insurance company would make payment to the brigade that put out the fire. But since there were multiple brigades hoping for a piece of the pie, payment would only be made to the first brigade to arrive, hook up to the hydrant, and extinguish the blaze. In the 1800s, this led to fierce rivalries and epic races through city streets between competing fire brigades. To the citizens, it was something of a spectator sport, and they could never be sure when it would happen. But when the bell would ring, uh, Dalmatian dogs would run out in front, clearing the way, and behind them would be horse-drawn fire engines careening at breakneck speeds down the cobblestone streets. And over time, the brigades began to see their greatest opponent not as the fire, but as the opposing brigade. And sometimes they would sabotage each other's equipment, and more than once fistfights broke out at the scene where the brigades would ignore the flames and do battle with each other for the right to put out the fire. Newspaper writer Joe Luther described one scene from San Antonio in the 1880s with a dejected homeowner sitting on the curb, his house going up in flames behind him, and in the street were not one but two fire brigades fighting not with the fire but fighting with each other over who had gotten there first. How often does this describe the church? Where we are fighting with each other instead of our true enemy and foe. So how do we guard our unity? Well, there's a lot of ways to do this, and in the weeks to come, Paul's going to talk a lot about this. But let me just read one passage for you from uh, Ephesians that puts it well. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. There's that word again, urge. I beg you. This is so important. I am begging you. Watch this. To walk in a manner, here we go, same idea again, a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What have you been called to? To be a citizen of the kingdom of God. So here's how you do it, with all humility. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come. That is thinking more of others than yourself. It's a good place to start. It makes sense. With humility, with gentleness, that we deal kindly and gently with with each other. Uh, That you do it with patience. And just so you get the idea, not just with patience, but he kind of repeats it in another way, bearing with one another, right? So sometimes... Patience means bearing. The word literally means long-suffering. Notice, in love. So we don't just cross our arms and be like, when are you going to get your act together? But we do it in love. Eager, why do we do this? Eager to maintain the what? The unity. The unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So each one of us are to diligently guard the unity of the church around us. We are to identify when we see divisions in other believers. We are to get involved. We are to repent. We are to ask forgiveness. We are not to be content to just let it go. And I've kind of was been reminded of that this week because the World Series is going on and, and I'm from Southern California. They kind of have a stake in it. I know it looks difficult, but I think they're going to win. And, uh, but what's interesting to me is to watch like, yeah, I know, ever hopeful. Um, but it's always interesting to me watch how people get in the World Series, how people get into football you know, in our neighborhood. Anytime there's a Seahawks game, there's like the flags out, right, on the house and all this stuff. And it's always interesting to me how we're kind of a culture of people 
people, we don't actually play football. We don't actually play baseball, but we watch it, right? We turn it on, we sit on the couch, we eat lots of food, and, you know, we yell at the TV on how to, how to do it right. But we don't actually play on a team, we are spectators. And here's the irony to me, that the gospel is the biggest game in town, and we are part of the team. That's a team we are part of. We, we have been drafted onto a team. We have been given a playbook. We have been sent out. We are not to be spectators. We are to be involved in the game. So he says, get in the game in unity, side by side, standing firm. And he says one other thing here. He says, and in living without fear, he says, don't be afraid. Do not be frightened in anything by your opponent. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation that is from God. He just says this, live by faith. Stand firm. Trust in your God. Don't be afraid. And then Paul wraps it up because he wants to remind us of something that we might miss, we might not think of. He wants us to remind us about the grace of God, that every citizen has been given grace of God. And here's what's really interesting about this passage. He mentions not one, but two graces, and he kind of catches us off guard. In verse 29, he says this, For it has been granted to you, so as citizens, God has granted something to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now the word granted there in the Greek it comes from the same root in the Greek as the word grace. So what he's saying is God has granted to all of you two graces. The first one you're going to love the second one, you're going to be like, hmm, not so sure about that. So the first form of grace that he gives us is to believe. That is a form of God's grace. Believing in God is a gift of God. Ephesians explains that to us in 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy in his love for you, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were, notice, even when we were what? Dead. So we were dead. We were separated from God. Dead in our sins. He made us alive. Who made us alive? He made us alive. He made us alive together with him in Christ. For by grace, that's a word gift, as a gift you have been saved through believing, through faith. And this is not of your own doing. You didn't do it. You didn't figure it out. It is a gift. It is a grace of God. So what he says is he reminds us that believing is a grace from God to which Hopefully most of us could sit back and say, thank God for his grace. We love his grace. We love the fact that he has led us to belief. Yeah, the second one we might not get so excited about when he says there's a second grace that God has given us, the grace of suffering, the grace of, of pain, of hurting, of, of persecution. What he says here is that both believing and suffering are God's grace to us. And in fact, scholars have noted that the way that this, this, this is structured in the Greek, there is more emphasis on the second than the first. That somehow the second is somehow even a, a greater grace to us than the first. Now Jesus already told us that identifying with him is going to bring trouble in life. And in John 15, 20, he said this, remember the words I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If, if they persecuted me, yeah, they're going to persecute you. If they, if they kept my word, that is, if they received my word as I shared the gospel, they'll receive it from you. 
Jesus just said you're going to face trouble in life. If you determine to live as a citizen of heaven first, if you're going to be countercultural, if you're going to walk side by side and stand firm and contend for the gospel and proclaim Jesus, there's going to be trouble in your life. And what Paul is saying is something radical here. He's saying that to suffer for Jesus is a privilege. Now, this is what often happens to us. We don't get that. And we think somehow that to suffer is a bad thing. And then we get confused when we suffer. And we get stressed when we suffer. And we start to question God. Does God love me? And is God involved? And Paul wants to remind us, no, no, no. In fact, here's how one commentator put it. And uh, he's walking a very fine line here, but I'll read this for you. He says, the fellowship of Christ's suffering, which is a term Paul uses a lot, the fellowship of suffering with Christ moves the believer beyond the role of beneficiary of his death to a sharer in his suffering. Now, let me explain that. He's not saying that our suffering could in any way contribute to the work that Christ did on the cross. That's not what he's saying. He did all that work himself. But when we suffer for the cause of Christ, we move from, let's just say, a, a beneficiary, a spectator, to being one who is in the trenches with Christ. And it becomes, for us, a fellowship with Christ as we are in the trenches of life with him. And Paul's point is that suffering and salvation both are gifts of God that are essential. They're essential to spiritual growth. Suffering teaches us to run to Jesus in a way that, I don't know if you notice this, when everything's easy and everything's good, we don't tend to run to Jesus every day. We don't tend to get on our knees and, and, and be with him like that. But we do when we suffer and it teaches us. It, it gives us perspective on this world versus heaven. It teaches us that, you know, the things of this world will never bring satisfaction. But when everything's going well, we sometimes forget that. When we're suffering, when we're being persecuted and we lose those things that we were counting on, we start to get a different perspective in life. It grows our faith and our peace and our love and our joy in a way that just kind of gliding through life will never do. So Paul reminds us there are two graces of God to us. There's the, the grace of believing and there's, there's the grace of suffering, which we'll talk more about in the weeks to come. But I want to kind of wrap it up by just giving you a little challenge. We do this every week. So, so what do we do with this, right? This is great, but how do we live this out? I want to ask you a, a, a question to think about today. Where in your life right now do you need to stand firm for the gospel this week? Right, so maybe there's some place in your life where it's, it's kind of like being in, in prison for Paul. And it would be easy to say, when I get out of prison, I'll stand firm. When, it, when life gets better, I'll stand firm. You know, when, it, when, when I get married, I'll stand firm. Or when we have kids, I'll stand firm. When the kids are out of the house, I'll stand firm. Or, you know, when I have free time, I'll... No, where do you need to stand firm this week? Where do you need to share the gospel this week? And who could you partner with? Because you don't need to do this alone. Where do you need to stand for the gospel this week? And who can you do it with? So let me just close with this. And we, I, I know we talk about this a lot. But I think it's helpful for us. You know, we, live in a, we live in a culture, and you may have picked this up, this culture that says, my home is my castle. Did you ever hear that? My home is my fortress. And what we mean by that is, is that my home is all about me. 
It's all about my, my privacy. It's a, it's, so we kind of imagine ourselves, I go to work, I go to school, it's tough, it's hard. And when I come home at the end of the day, I want the drawbridge to come down and I want to drive, for us it's the automatic garage door opener. So I want the, I want the garage door opener to go up. I don't want to have to get out of my car and open the door because my neighbors might catch me, right? So I want to open the door and drive in and I want to have the drawbridge go back up and the moat will protect me and I'll go inside and I'll turn on my TV and I'll sit on my couch. Don't bother me. Don't talk to me. I've had a rough day. And this is our culture today. And as Christians, we can fall into that. I just want peace and I want the remote and I just want to keep the door closed and the door locked and the shades down. But what if as Christians, we decided our home is not a fortress, but it is an outpost of the gospel. It is a city on a, on a hill. It is a bright light shining so that, you know, the window shades are up and the front door is, is open and anyone is welcome to walk in, you know, and just sit down. Your neighbors know they can just come in. People in your grow group know that they can just come in. Well, I literally have people in our grow group. Uh, one of them is a track coach and he runs his team by my house. And sometimes he just, I know when he's doing it, he'll go right through He'll come right into my house, doesn't even knock on the door, walks into the kitchen, grabs a Diet Coke, and goes back out. Sometimes I don't even see him. I just notice my Diet Coke is gone. Um, but this, this is what we're talking about. Like, what if you treated your home as a gospel outpost, as a light in a darkness? What if, you, what if you practiced hospitality, practiced generosity, demonstrated God's love where God, the gospel is celebrated and, and proclaimed? What if you thought about your house that way? What if you thought about your time that way? What if you decided that your time was like your house? It doesn't belong to you anymore. Your time belongs to the gospel. What if you treated your wealth that way? What if you treated your, your, the school you attend that way? Or your job that way? What if you treated your marriage that way? What if you treated your vehicle that way? My vehicle is like a rolling gospel outpost, you know? So I'll, yeah, I'll slow it down and, and, uh, and I might just pick up people and take them for rides because, you know, if they want to, because uh, my, my vehicle is now part of, the, part of the gospel, right? What if I treated my talents that way? What if you did that? What if you decided Every moment of my life, I'm an outpost of the gospel. And not only will I live that way, but I will, I will partner with other people because we are always better together. And what if you did that with your spouse or with your family or with your grow group? What if you, what if you went to your grow group this week and said, I love getting together and hanging out with you guys and eating food. That's what my group does. But, you know, if we decided, you know, we need to do some other things. Let's go serve somewhere this week. Let's go feed someone this week. Let's do something as a group this week. Let's be in gospel outposts. What if you did that uh, with your Bible study, your ministry team? What if you stopped trying to do it alone? And if you decided to, to get a, a, a teammate, to someone to do it with at school, at work, wherever you are, and, and allow them to encourage you and you to encourage them. So because really this is, so this is Gateway's goal. If you were to summarize, you know, what's Gateway all about? We would tell you this. Our goal is to saturate our community with the gospel. To saturate it. To be an outpost that is growing and growing and growing. 
so that we saturate our homes with the gospel. We saturate our neighborhoods with the gospel. We saturate our schools and the, and the seats of government and businesses. You know, I tell you this all the time, but our goal is you can, you can go to a coffee shop and, and you can walk in that shop and there are going to be people talking about Jesus. And right where we start to own those coffee shops and we own the seats of government and we own the schools because the gospel is being talked about until it reaches a saturation point. None of us can lead someone to faith. None of us can lead someone to repentance. None of us can lead someone to believe in Jesus. But we can saturate our community and our neighborhoods with the good news of Jesus that leads people to salvation. And God can do his saving work. So we'll do our part. We will strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. And we will saturate our homes and our neighborhoods and our communities. And God will we'll do the saving. That's why we strive. That's why it's never good enough for us to fill up a worship service or two or three. It's never good enough because there are still people who need Jesus Christ. So we're gonna go out from this place side by side and saturate this community. Amen? Let's pray together.